Hello, welcome to the Pup Scientific podcast, the Paincast, and uh, today we have another episode. My name is Bart van Bruggen. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist uh, um, based in uh, close to Amsterdam, at least. And today here with me is Lauren Heathcote. Um, and I'm excited to have her on our podcast because um, she's been um, a panelist before with another session, a science session that we have with uh, um, with Haley Leake, uh, who recently married, by the way. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's great to have you, uh, Lauren. I just want to give you like a brief introduction so people know who you are, uh, as far as uh, people don't know that yet. So um, since 2021, um, uh, you're a King's College London senior lecturer and a PhD in psychology. And um, the research focus has been based on, on the understanding of psychology of pain and symptom perception and leveraging this understanding of developing brief targeted interventions to improve health outcomes. Who wouldn't agree? <laughs> um, and um, uh, as you were um, more involved in pediatric pain and the psychology Behind that, uh, you moved yourself into uh, cancer survivors and their pain experiences. And um, as I just understand it, you in a brief um, um, talk we had before the recording, um, I understand it's like not just children, but it's also every age is included now over the whole spectrum. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Bart. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's very nice. So I think um, the first question will be the one that I announced to you. So what excites you at this stage in your career regarding your work? I'm excited about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I actually spend quite a lot of time thinking about this, this question because I, um, as of a year and a half ago, um, have been setting up a lab at King's College London. And one of the things you have to decide when you set up a lab is what research are we going to focus on? What are we going to do? Yeah. What's exciting us? So um, I think maybe there's two things um, I'm particularly excited about at the moment. The first is applying a biopsychosocial model of pain to contexts where it hasn't been very well applied before. So We've done a really good job in the context of the chronic musculoskeletal pain, sometimes called chronic idiopathic pain, of developing and applying this biopsychosocial model of pain, both to assessment, to uh, understanding pain, and to treating it. But when we study and treat pain in other conditions, for example, where there's some other underlying illness like cancer or uh, chronic kidney disease, for example. The way that we assess and treat pain is still mostly stuck in a biomedical model. So as you mentioned, we've been doing some work trying to apply more of a biopsychosocial understanding of pain to cancer survivors. And I'm really excited to be continuing that work. And since moving here to King's, I've also been connecting with folks who study different illness populations, things like um, adults living with chronic kidney disease, 
we've even started to move away from just pain, but other physical symptoms. So um, working with kids who um, have food allergies, where we can apply more of a biopsychosocial model to understanding the experience of pain and symptoms in those conditions. And then I think the second thing that's exciting me is that we're starting to translate uh, observational findings of things like uh, the role of psychosocial factors in the experience of pain, um, for example, in cancer survivors, into new opportunities for intervention. I am an experimental psychologist by training and I always steered quite clear of intervention. <laughs> that was in the wheelhouse of the clinical psychologist. Um, but I became interested in intervention um, when I was learning from my wonderful mentor um, back at, at Stanford, Leah Crum. Um, she was quoting another famous scientist, I think, that to truly understand how something works, you should change it. And so I've become more interested now in ways to really understand how pain works and how physical symptoms work by doing some brief, targeted, often more preventative interventions um, that could have a, a positive clinical impact. All right, let, let's start with the first one. <laughs> um, thank you for, for summarizing this in the first place. But um, so applying a biopsychosocial approach in a context where it's not necessarily been common or let's say uh, usual care if you like so can you can you elaborate a bit more on where that issue sits and where why you think that is something worthwhile i think it's worthwhile and it fits primarily because it just makes so much sense. So the biopsychosocial model of pain really has stemmed from our study of chronic, more idiopathic pain conditions, where we needed to move away from this simple idea that pain is due to tissue damage, because often in those cases, there is less tissue damage or no tissue damage that can help to explain the pain. But a really good biopsychosocial model recognizes that there are, I think, biological, psychological, and social contributors to pain. And that's so true within the context of chronic illnesses and relapsing and remitting conditions, where there are these strong biological factors. So, for example, in the context of cancer survivorship, these individuals have had um, tumors, for example, that have pressed on nerves and changed things about their body. They've been through really intense and often toxic treatments like chemotherapy and radiotherapy that can um, cause tissue damage and changes to the nerves. But there's also these really strong psychosocial factors. And one of the things that we've been studying is the role of fear and uncertainty and threat interpretations. So we've seen in the context of chronic pain that when we're fearful of that pain and what it could mean, 
when we're uncertain about what the pain means for our body? You know, does it mean that there's something really wrong? Does it mean that I'm going to be feeling pain forever? Those things really change the experience of pain. They can amplify the pain. They can make it more interfering. They change the way we learn about pain, the way we expect pain. They change our behavioral response to pain or maybe stopping doing things. And those things are all so relevant in the context of a chronic illness or a relapsing and remitting illness, where there often is fear and threat of things like disease recurrence in the context of cancer survivors, for example, or disease progression in the context of something like chronic kidney disease. So I think that the biopsychosocial model just makes so much sense in these conditions. Yes, I've got, I, I totally um, couldn't agree more. And what what I would I, I want to pick on the um, go with with the uncertainty and the meaning of pain. I can relate to that very strongly. Where pain may be a very strong predictor, or in a person's mind at least, or their thoughts that it, oh my maybe it's the disease that is 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 getting worse or is uh, um, reoccurring for example or the disease is back so can you give it like an example or how that the role from a psychologist could help with that and how do you feel like how is it possible to change the meaning of the feeling that people do have mm. yes i you're so right so when i started becoming interested in this experience of pain in the context of cancer survivors, for example. It was quite clear to me that, of course, if you've had an experience of something like cancer or another life-threatening illness, even if that experience is behind you, when you have even a common headache or a very low level pain, something that's a one out of 10 on a, a scale, that pain could be particularly threatening because you've had this very salient experience where potentially pain was once tied to um, the, the illness developing or getting worse. And so it's very normal to now think about that pain potentially indicating something dangerous um, again. But when I looked in the literature um, several years ago at you know, how people make sense of and interpret pain in the context of cancer survival. There is really nothing about the meaning of pain in that context. No one seemed to be asking patients or survivors, what does it mean for you when you have a headache? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You know, why do you, are you sort of not able to focus on other things, even if it's a, just an everyday ache and pain? So what we've been doing over the last few years has been really just asking young and older people who've had an experience of cancer, you know, what does that pain mean for you? And often they would tell us through qualitative and, and quantitative work, you know, that when I have a, an ache or a pain, I worry that it means my cancer's come back, or maybe I have a new cancer. Or maybe there's some late effect of my chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatment that's emerging. You know, really, the, the meaning of pain within this uncertain 
health context is that pain could mean something really threatening. And often patients find it hard to know how to live with that uncertainty of physical symptoms, when to respond to it, when to tell someone about it, and when not to. So how likely, especially when it's a traumatic, traumatic event, it, like a diagnosis that is, I guess, with the uncertainty of what does my body tells me, does it, is that still valid or trustworthy? What is in your experience is, is it, how does treatment, how successful could it be? If how likely is it that people really can transform that to make it more, let's say, neutral at least, um, or less, um, probably less disabling to that degree? How, what, is your, what is your feeling about that? I think there's a huge amount of room for change in helping people to cope with the uncertainty and sort of the threat value of physical symptoms in the context of things like cancer survivorship, but also other chronic um, and degenerative illnesses. And this speaks maybe a little to that, that second thing I was excited about, you know, where are the room for yeah, intervention? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I thought. It ties into that, absolutely. And I think I see pathways for intervention in many different places. Maybe I can talk about a few, a few of those pieces sure, that yeah, we're yeah, working on. Yeah. So one thing I'm really interested in is using psychologically wise interventions where we can identify a key moment or opportunity for learning and if we can change the way someone makes sense of their pain in that key opportunity moment, that can have a real downstream consequence on how they cope with and manage uncertainty and fear around pain and physical symptoms uh, later on. So we've been doing some work around that clinician-patient communication. So when you finish uh, cancer treatment, for example, you know, you're often told you know, we finished treatment, potentially you're sort of some, somewhat cured, but you're at risk. Your body is at risk for various things like recurrence, but also new disease, new illnesses, late effects of treatment. And the clinical message at that point is often you know, to be vigilant. It almost encourages um, a fear and worry about everyday aches and pains. Yes. And that's a very, it's a very sort of kind and safe clinical message to deliver. But what we're seeing in our research is that that can have quite a negative impact on certainly mental health, mm -hmm. but also sort of fueling this idea of, you know, I, I should be vigilant and I should worry about every single change in my body. Mm -hmm. So one little opportunity, I think, for intervention is just in those brief clinical messages that either the oncologist or maybe a nurse or maybe a psychologist delivers as someone is finishing their treatment that helps to firstly normalize worry about pain because often what happens is you go away and you start worrying about everything and you don't realize that everyone else worries about everything too and you're gonna have pains, you're gonna have different physical sensations and you're probably going to worry about them, and that's okay. Most of them will, will be nothing. 
So firstly, just normalizing that worry. And secondly, potentially offering some guidance about here are the kinds of pains, like pain that wakes you up in the middle of the night, for example, that I, you know, I as a clinician want you to come and tell me about because it might be something we want to follow up on. And then here are the kinds of things like a headache that goes away, you know, when in a day or two that actually you probably don't need to tell me about. And it's probably just a headache. So providing some very brief sort of normalizing and educational messages around pain as mm. someone is finishing treatment, I think could be really powerful. Another way that we can intervene is when potentially someone has got stuck in that sort of vigilant and ruminative um, place where they can't help but have their attention captured by every change in their body because it's so, so threatening. And there I think, you know, this is more, again, the realm of the clinical psychologist, but things like a more mindful um, and accepting awareness of physical sensations trying to move someone from that state of worry and sort of extreme um, fear in response to physical sensations to more of a, an accepting sort of awareness. Mm, I've noticed a change and let's see how it goes. It might be that I'm worrying. Um, that could be helpful too. And there, I think the psychologist um, can play a, a big role. There's also sort of one more area that I'm really interested in and we just got a grant um, to sort of develop an intervention around these lines. And that's using digital interventions to try and instill more adaptive mindsets about the body as a whole. So we, we've been learning through our research that fear and worry about pain is sometimes accompanied by a sort of overall mindset that your body is at risk, your body is an unsafe place to be, it's not trustworthy, as you were saying, um, it's not capable of recovering and healing, and it's it's an adversary, it's working against you. Mm. So we are now developing, um, in collaboration with Young Cancer Survivors, a series of uh, videos that we think might be able to help instill more adaptive mindsets about the body. That yes, when you've had an experience of cancer, your body has let you down. And in, in many ways, it has become this unsafe place. But actually your body is still working with you in many ways to help communicate what's going on. It still has capacity to recover, to allow you to do things that you want to do. And we hope that this intervention approach will firstly help young survivors feel safer in their bodies mm. and potentially that that might have a downstream effect then on how they are able to cope with the uncertainty and fear around pain and other physical symptoms yeah and would you recognize people like who are especially suffering or being challenged by this feeling of uncertainty than others or you could say are there certain personalities people with certain, let's say, would there be predictors of people who are challenged by this and uh, in life as well? Mm. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> um, it's an interesting question, Bart. So 
one of the things I love about being in health psychology, rather than coming from, say, a clinical psychology background, mm-hmm. is that I think we apply a sort of normal psychology to the understanding of things like pain and physical symptoms. So, and that's quite different from a psychopathology model where you're asking questions like you just asked me, you know, what are the personality traits that make someone more likely to have this exaggerated fear response, for example? And I don't, I don't love those questions <laughs> because it suggests that being fearful of or uncertain about pain is a, an abnormal response. You know, and it stems from some underlying neurotic personality trait, for example. Yes. And that's not to say that things like um, underlying anxiety or even neuroticism might not play a role here. But I find it more helpful to ask questions from a more normal psychology. Yeah. And that's really led a lot of our work is what are the experiences that this individual has had? What are the clinical messages they've received from their team, for example? What are the early experiences they had of pain during their diagnosis that now makes them more likely to feel very uncertain or not, you know, struggle with coping with uncertainty about pain? And that's why our interventions are targeting more of those clinical messages and those sort of experiences rather than some sort of underlying personality trait. So, yeah, I I like that answer. I think thanks for that, because I do think we we might need to we want, but we need to pick up things. Right. So people will not necessarily start with, oh, I'm actually really afraid of my pain because I think it might be a sign of my cancer is coming back. People will probably will show other things. So could you give a couple of examples or an example of people? What is the what are the the signs you should pick up of being aware of? as a clinician to know that someone is struggling with that feeling of uncertainty. So what will be the, let's say the, well, what is the model we're looking for um, and be more aware of so we can actually talk about it rather than neglecting it? Mm, Great question. I've learned a lot from my um, oncology collaborator, Dr. Sherry Spunt in Stanford about just this. What are the ways that clinicians could um, identify patients who are struggling with these fears and worries and potentially sort of provide support? I think one way to identify this maybe is through behavior. So if someone is worrying about pain as potentially a sign of recurrence or illness and is struggling to deal with those uncertainties, they may present more to the clinic with new aches and pains that they want to get checked out. Mm. So someone you know, coming in for extra tests and scans beyond that sort of normal um, routine survivorship care could be one sign. But what Sherry and I have sort of come, come to the conclusion of is that actually you just need to ask <laughs> patients yeah. and don't say, are you worrying about things? But say, you know, what are you worrying about? Hmm. And, you know, you told me that you had this um, sort of strange like, breathing sensation. You know, we've done we've done the x-ray. Everything's fine. And I can see on your face that there's a huge sigh of relief. <laughs> you know, 
when you were feeling this, what did it mean to you? Mm. What, what were you worrying about? Cultural and her clinical practice. It's almost like assuming patients will worry and sort of tackling those worries head on. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's very helpful, just asking it. And um, what, what is... What is um, what is the response you 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 have had these conversations and also with this oncologist um so what is the general response from people who've been asking for like uh they're relieved that they're able to talk about it um should there be a right time and a right moment for it is it like a typical psychology question or is it something that happens with a physiotherapist for example when they've been uh evaluating their status or their situation the experience I've had is that it is often a big relief for patients to hear that other people worry about these things too. Mm. It can be quite a private and lonely experience. I think worrying about physical sensations like pain, not wanting to talk too much about it. So, you know, one of the best things for me as a researcher is when I talk about our research and it really resonates mm. with patients and clinicians, they say, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And that's just for me is the best, <laughs> the best thing. Um, and your second part of your question was? Uh, whether it's a good time and a good yeah. moment for this question or, yeah. Yeah. I think that there are many good times for this question. So we've been thinking a lot about oncology care and survivorship care. Mm -hmm. And certainly there, there are these sort of opportune moments like when someone's finishing treatment and you're preparing them to transition into survivorship care, or when someone comes in for their routine scan and test and maybe they, they tell you about a pain that they've been having. Those are fantastic opportunities for asking those questions. The role of the physiotherapist is such an interesting one, and I'm really interested in learning more about this. But one challenge that physiotherapists have in, for example, helping someone who's a cancer survivor with their pain is that they have to manage their own uncertainty around this individual's disease prognosis. They don't know always what the pain means. And so it's a really difficult situation yeah. to be in where you could have this really powerful effect of helping to reduce uncertainty and fear around pain, maybe helping to get that person moving again. But there's a lot of uncertainty because you're not an oncologist. And so you don't always know if you can deliver those messages of safety. Yeah, to, or to what degree you can help with that. I think you, that, that's spot on because <laughs> I think that's where I can relate as a clinician where this uncertainty absolutely is striking when your heart rate goes up when you try to figure out. So can I sort of can give you some, some help you to ease your, your fears around, but is that, is that something it's, is it reasonable if I'm, I'm, if, Am I, am I the right person to do so? And um, I think that brings me to this last question. Um, 
because there's so many things we can go in here. But, um, so working, I, I think you nicely described this as a, you, you, you named like the oncologist, the psychologist, the nurse and physiotherapist. And we can, we can name all the allied health professionals. So what is the skill set? Well, what are key skill set for starting this conversation at least? So what is your training like? I think as a health psychologist, you are more probably more used to have these conversations or you learned yourself to do so. But what is what is a critical communication style or well, I wouldn't say training, but at least what is the skill set like to, to be comfortable with that? situation that's definitely something we're still figuring out I think that two key skills that a clinician across all of those domains could have when working with a patient for example who's had an experience of cancer and now has pain is so number one just to be sensitive to the meaning of their pain for that individual and I, I suppose a key skill set there is the qualities of being able to ask about the meaning of that pain in a way that's not pathologizing and confrontational. It might feel for the patient like it's a, it's silly <laughs> to worry about every ache and pain that they have and to think that it could be this catastrophic event when in most cases it, it, it won't be. So being able to be open to hearing those, those thoughts and to asking about the meaning of pain, I think is important. And secondly, this will differ as we've just talked about, you know, for different clinicians with different expertise, it would differ from an oncologist to a physiotherapist, but being able to help, help the person to feel safe within their body within whatever kind of clinical remit you have. So as a physiotherapist, that might be, you, know, you feel comfortable communicating that the person is safe to you know, move this part of their body, even if it's you know, slightly painful to do so because they're rebuilding muscle and you've got all of that brilliant knowledge around how the biology of how that works. Maybe you don't feel as comfortable making them feel safe when they have some new pain that they should get checked out, but within whatever expertise you have, helping that person to sort of de-threaten those symptoms and feel safe, I think is also a helpful skill. Yes, uh, I love that. I think that's um, that should be encouraging many clinicians who are listening. Well, I can do that, yeah. I, I can do that step. And then well, we need, there's not lots to learn there, but at least that's, uh, a great start so people feel heard and they can start talking about it this is my reflection on when my experience in this area where where it usually as the uncertainty as you as a clinician whatever your client kind of clinician but it's like um it really spot on you feel like oh this is something we need to discuss to some degree and related to movement or your mental health or whatsoever i think that's so so and then i guess things been changing over the last decades you, you can talk about it it's not like you had cancer and just you just have to be glad and be happy that you basically survived and just take on the take on the collateral damage <laughs> if you like um i think it's very nice that 
we starting to see these things. So this was very helpful, Lauren. This um, I think we covered basically the two excitements you you wanted to share. Uh, my last question would be um, a, a different one, which would be if you can invite two people for a, like a nice happy evening, have a drink and a good chat, who would it be? So before I um, moved to, to King's to start, to start my lab, um, I spent five wonderful years um, in the um, anesthesia department at Stanford Medical School in California. And it still holds a very special place in my heart. And one of the best things about being a researcher is you get to travel the world um, to do research and collaborate with people. And I'm very lucky that I get to go out there um, to see my old collaborators and mentors. And so I think the two people I would probably invite to the pub, although bearing in mind that there are no pubs in California, <laughs> is um, probably my two wonderful mentors there, Laura Simons um, and Aaliyah Crum. Um, being able to get them both in the same room at the same time would be brilliant. So maybe I would take them to um, a, an American sports bar <laughs> and have a drink with them there. <laughs> I'm sure that's that, that, and the, the sport probably won't bother you too much. Having a good conversation and uh, catching up. Well, that's lovely. Um, uh, thank you for that, Lauren. Um, I think this also sort of well raises the idea that we might want to hear more about you. We're just going to talk about that later, and um, we're excited to have you here on our pain podcast. And um, I think people enjoyed what you are listening to this one, and. Um, Thank you for that. So we're going to finish up for now. Um, thank you for listening. Um, we're going to be back in two weeks with another episode. Uh, check out the pubscientific.com for the next episodes and you will be updated. And um, you can try to share this message around. I think it's worthwhile sharing this podcast and uh, super helpful 30 minutes. Thank you, Lauren. And have a good day. Thank you, Bart. It's been a pleasure.